Welcome to the Hidden Figures Podcast, Behind the Numbers with the Restaurant Scientist. Within this podcast, we take an in-depth look into the economics of the food service and restaurant industry. The show will examine the economic disparities and inequalities impacting black food service professionals and restaurateurs. We will support and empower black food service professionals and restaurateurs by providing opportunities for increased visibility, access to capital, and problem-solving expertise. Yes, yes, yes. Hello, 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 hello. Welcome. Welcome to another episode, Hidden Figures, Behind the Numbers with the Restaurant Scientist. My name is Jason Wallace, and I am the Restaurant Scientist. Um, Today, I'm honored to have Miss Charity Howard, a phenomenal entrepreneur, uh, I I have the title of the Restaurant Scientist, however, um, she actually is. A food scientist. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's it's an honor to have her, and I want to welcome her to the show. Charity Howard, food scientist, dope culinary reactions, Charity. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to speaking to you today. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming. Awesome. So let's let's just take a deep dive right into it. Tell us a little bit about your background, your professional services that you offered, and you know, how did you how did you find yourself in this lane? Yes, for sure. So um, I went to college at the University of Tennessee, and I happened to major in food science and technology. Um, upon obtaining that degree, I knew that with that, I wanted to do product development, food science specifically. Um, menu innovation, food service innovation within the QSR, fast, casual, and fine dining segment. Fast forward, I've been a few places, Mm -hmm. um, probably one of the largest um, chicken chains, you know, based out of Kentucky. Um, I did product development for that menu, um, a very large um, burger chain that is not the now, Burger King, um, <laughs> I did product <laughs> development with them for a very long time behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. So I've always been the behind the scenes girl that gets you um, literally some of your favorite menu items, um, the development of it, the strategy of it, what makes it taste good, um, the manufacturing of it, the production of it, the timing of it, the logistics of it. Uh, I'm sure you you would agree, Jason. People just don't realize um, all that goes into literally selling you a hamburger or whatever it is you want to buy from day to day. Um, but it truly is a science um, and making sure that it's consistent from the time it starts in my test kitchen in the lab to the time it gets to you in your belly. Nice. Nice. Absolutely. Again, I want to distinct, make the distinction because I'm a restaurant scientist at operations, right? Meaning that I'm the guy that's going to come in and look at your income statement, your cost of goods, uh, fixed costs, variable costs, and make sure that you are maximizing your net operating income. Uh, Charity is, again, again, the true scientist that really kind of helps me. And even as a chef, Charity, um, kind of like who is your ideal customer and just so for those that out you know my listeners out there some of them are you know they have sauces or 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 dry rubs or spices or seasonings that they want to develop so 
you know, speak to them a little bit. Speak about each individual. I guess those are different lanes, clearly. Yeah. Um, but yeah. even like, so start with me. I'm a restaurant consultant. If I am yep. now working on a new restaurant project, am I an ideal client for you? And if so, should, when I come to you, what do I need to have? So should I say, okay, I want one signature appetizer, entree, dessert, um, and, you know, do you then help me flush that recipe out? Uh, so mm -hmm. walk us through who the ideal customer is in each lane. Yeah, sure. So um, that's a great question. Um, the ideal customer, again, in my career, I have operated on large-scale um, restaurant systems. I mm -hmm. mean, literally um, 500, 5,000 plus. However, on the consulting side, I've offered my consulting, ser consulting services, particularly within the Black community, to do just that. I have several restauranteurs, um, entrepreneurs, chefs that'll come to me to say, listen, um, I have one store in one location and I make this sauce by hand every day and I'm kind of tired of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I would like to go into production to scale this up so that it's gonna taste exactly like how I'm making it by hand, but I can take that labor cost out of my system and transfer it to production costs for scaling it up with a manufacturer. Or what it might look like is I have one restaurant today. I'm now going to build another one across town. Then I'm going to scale up to build another one in another city. And I'm expanding. We see that often. And that is always the goal of a restaurant here, right? So as they expand and exactly that, as they continue to grow, I want to make sure that if I'm eating at XYZ in Atlanta, Georgia, versus XYZ in Birmingham, Alabama, that my customer my, my, and my guest is going to get a consistent product mm -hmm. from each location. And so that's what I come, that's where I come in. I transfer those recipes to formulations so that you're not tied to actually doing the hands-on work yourself. Ideally, that formulation can be taken from vendor to vendor, co-packer, production, however you want to call that, to mm -hmm. say, hey, this is what I have. Let's scale this up. This is the amount I need per month, per year, depending on shelf life and all the rest. Um, and let's get a consistent volume going with that. I know when it comes to my store, I know how to store it to keep it fresh. I know where to keep it. Um, I know the usage per sandwich, per you know menu item, whatever that looks like. Um, and that creates a consistency um, within all of your restaurants. Nice, nice. So at what time should someone, you know, at what point in the process should someone come to you? So if, like for right now, I'm, I'm in the process of designing and building out a new restaurant, right? Yeah. So I have an idea of what I want on the menu. Um, do I come to you now or do I get it up and running and then say, okay, here's a menu for my barbecue sauce or for mm -hmm. my my buffalo cheese dip or whatever the case mm -hmm. may be? Do I, do I come to you after I develop the base recipe and I'm open and then we talk about scalability and cost and all of that or do I get you in earlier in the process? The ideal time to come to someone like me would be after you are, you know, you've gotten your recipe um, developed, you're tried and true with it, you know it works, you know people enjoy it, and you know that's going to be a staple on um, your menu, absolutely. A lot of times people will do that. They have something that they just know 
um, especially on the consultancy side, they just know it's going to be gangbusters. And then it ends up, they make this large investment to scale it up and um, it doesn't sell like they, mm-hmm. like they think. So now you put all this capital behind it without, you know, validating the assumption. So I would recommend, you know, even though I would always recommend, make sure you're, you know, you're heavy in it. Make sure you're for sure. And then as you scale up and grow, that's when I will come in to, um, to assist. Got it. Got it. So walk us through the scientific process, right? From ideation to product launch. All right. So now we're yeah. not in a restaurant. Let's talk about, okay, I have a sauce that yeah. I want to take to Whole Foods or to yeah. market and sell. Uh, what's that process like? Yeah. So that process, <laughs> man, it's, it's so much. I like to call that what I call like the food innovation funnel. Mm-hmm. We always have a, the largest part of the funnel and then we then we condense and go down. Um, people would have no idea how many things, especially for um, QSR restaurants and large scale restaurants that do not make it. There are so many tests and so many iterations, even for a CPG product, so many tests and so many iterations and things that may start out one way and end another or just don't make it at all. So the idea portion of the funnel is the largest, Mm -hmm. you know, this is my gold standard, you know, I, I, you know, the cost may not necessarily be, you know, down to a certain uh, way or the packaging may not be 100%, but I know I'm about you know, 80, 75, 80% there on this is, this is what I want to sell. And bigger than anything, the concept, you have proven the concept, Mm -hmm. right? So then we begin to move it down the funnel. Mm -hmm. All right, let's, let's, let's test that. Um, Where I would come in, let's say it's a cracker type product that you want to, to your point, put in a whole foods store. Mm -hmm. Um, You take your gold standard recipe that you've done and you love and you tested the concept and validate it. So how can we engineer cost out of that? How can we make it more profitable? If you may be using fresh garlic, Mm. I need you as the chef or the culinarian to tell me, would a garlic powder be a sufficient replacement? You know, would a garlic oil be a sufficient replacement? So we go back and forth. That's truly an R&D process over and over again. I, as the food scientist, validate you as the chef, um, validate your gold standard while getting to the profit level and the dollar value that you're looking to get there. From there, we move a little bit further down. And again, we would go into some sort of test. We would get this. uh, Sometimes people want to see that tested in a real world environment, maybe not quite a whole foods, but if you can get some sort of contract with a local bodega around the corner or whatever else, you'll at least know how people respond to it. Some people don't feel they need to do that. They say, all right, you know, I don't, nope, I want to go straight to the big guy. So let's just keep on moving forward. And either is fine, um, you know, right. it's your product. So um, what we'll do there, assuming you're not going to do any sort of in-store feasibility or proof of concept test, what we'll do there is go straight to the manufacturer and go to the co-packer and say, listen, this is my ideal formulation. These are the raw material ingredients that I need. You know, this is, you know, how much it takes. This is the amount of time. We even get to the specifics of, you know, if I have water in this cracker recipe, what is the temperature of the water Mm. that it's going to have to be every single time Mm. so that it is consistent? Dropping a nugget there. there, That was, I don't know, that was huge right there. What is this? What is the temperature? So she's really talking about, again, consistency of the environment that we are producing this product in so that we could 
control that environment and know that at the end of the process, it is the same. It tastes the same. The color is the same. The consistency, yeah. the viscosity, all of That's those right. things are consistent across the board. Wow. That's absolutely right. Continue. Yes. I didn't mean it, but I just, you said, you, you're saying, so you're dropping so many nuggets. One, you said <laughs> CPG. What does that, what does that mean? CPG stands for consumer packaged goods. So those are the things that you can buy in the middle aisles of a grocery store. Anything that is put into uh, any sort of packaging with a label on the back, yep. that's what I call CPG. CPG. The difference between that is food and food service is something that you would go into a restaurant and purchase off of a menu. You may not see the exact ingredients. You may not know, you know, it doesn't come with a label. It's something that you eat on demand. Consumer. Okay. Very, okay. Great. And clearly there are additional steps that are required if you're going to go to the public in terms of nutritional labeling and, yes. and all of those items. All right. Yes. The uh, government is heavy in that. <laughs> okay. So now you also said one thing I wanted to point out. She also said engineering costs out. So yep. if, if you follow me, on any of my social medias, you know that I'm always talking about engineering profits because, you know, for a restaurant, as particularly we talk about multiple unit uh, operators, your, your chain operators, um, they they don't just accidentally end up with profit. Right? It, you know, it's a formula. It's a scientific formula. Again, hence the restaurant scientists. I can tell you there's only 100 pennies in every dollar. So mm -hmm. if you want to keep 15% on out of every dollar or 15 pennies out of every dollar, everything else has to be less than that, right? 85 pennies have to go towards all other costs. So when she said engineering costs out, again, that's part of the scientific process that we take to make sure that we truly understand we can control that environment. Yes, there will be a little margin of error there, but in process improvement and Six Sigma and all of that's those right. agile thinking, all those fell fast and first you know, concepts, it's all about understanding the processes, controlling the environment, and engineering a consistent product in this case, we're talking about engineering costs out that will allow you to engineer profits consistently. So she slipped that in there. She's so knowledgeable. I just want to <laughs> kind of slow her down a little bit and let, let you guys understand what it is yeah. she's, she's actually saying when she's talking about engineering costs out. Am I correct, Charity? You are spot on. Okay. Thank you for reiterating that. <laughs> okay. All right. So now we talked a little bit about understanding the process from ideation to product launch. Um, I don't know if you can take a deeper dive into how important the formulation, mass production, um, that process is. Uh, yep. The floor is yours. So talk Absolutely. a little bit more about so, formulation. Yes. So that right there, um, you know, I think, um, first of all, oftentimes people don't understand the difference between a chef and a food scientist. Um, I consider the chef... Um, and culinary arts, exactly that, the artistic piece of it. You get us the gold standard. You get us this. If I had all the money in the world, if I could have it my way, this is what I would want. Where I come in as the food scientist, again, is ensuring that you actually do get as close to that. And I'm glad that you said that margin of error because oftentimes um, when I work with chefs, you know, you're very close to the product. And I, as a product developer, 100% understand and agree. Um, but sometimes, you know, you have to 
deviate. Uh, we may not be able to get you 100% because of cost, because of ramp up, because of scalability, but we can at least get you 90. And if mm. that is good enough to prove, you know, to launch your concept, you'll win. So going back to the portion of as we begin to scale up, as you mentioned, not only the uh, raw materials and the ingredients that make your product what it is, but the good, the GMPs, the good manufacturing practices, the um, all of the procedures that go behind. When I create a formulation and a specification, I call it the Bible of the product. Mm -hmm. I don't care whose hands it's in, you're going to do it this way mm -hmm. every time. Mm -hmm. So that you as a restauranteur or a chef do not have to worry about nuances. If you're, if the plant that we're producing it in today burns down tomorrow, that's all right. You got yourself a formulation and a specification and we can go elsewhere. Yep. All we need is a couple of trials, a couple of pilot plant runs to make sure again, it's consistent um, and that it's at parity with what it is you were selling previously. And we're going to keep right on moving. So that means no loss of profit from your side as the restaurant here and as the chef. Absolutely. Wow. So you, you kind of hit on my next question, which was, you know, how do you maintain quality? And you maintain quality because by creating that Bible, right, the formulation. Yeah. And again, as you said, no matter whose hands it is in, um, mm -hmm. you know, then it becomes a quality control on the actual person who's following the recipe right, or who's following That's the formulation. Right. Um, wow. So let's talk a little bit about the numbers. Right. Meaning that, uh, you know, people who have products out there now, they may be, again, making a cookie or a brownie or a sauce or some spices and seasoning. What are some of the startup costs that they should, you know, high level, not exact, that they should expect at each phase of, you know, the process from, again, ideation to, you know, product launch? Uh, and then even on the, on the marketing, not exclude marketing, because that's a whole... Now that the product is done and packaging and all of that. But I, do you get involved with packaging? I do get involved with packaging. As a okay. food scientist, I need to ensure that your food grade packaging is exactly that as well. There's no degradation of the product over time. Um, I do um, work with shelf life studies to say, hey, if I have this beverage in an um, aluminum package versus if I have this beverage in a glass or even plastic package, what's going to be the difference in my quality as well my shelf life? All of those things are extremely imperative and should always be built in to your startup costs, not only for testing and validating, but as well for you know the ultimate cost of goods with your product. Um, other startup costs include just, again, exactly that, ingredients for trial and error. Mm -hmm. um, I think sometimes people again, get so caught up and gung-ho is, I know this is the cost, I know it'll sell it, but once we get to, to the startup, uh, to the ramp-up phase, and it doesn't go the same the first, second, third, or even 10th time, we got to make sure we have those raw materials and are able to pivot so that we can do something different either in the process or in the ingredient to ensure, again, you get that at least 90% of the 100% product that you have. Um, again, as you mentioned, even in regards to the dollar and cents, a formulation is a hundred percent everything is a hundred percent of something right mm -hmm. even our bodies right mm -hmm. it's all a hundred percent so when you begin pushing and pulling in and out i mean the 15 percent, even down to the point zero 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 one five percent all of that matters at the end of your product at the end of your um 
product. Oftentimes, too, people get hesitant about adding preservatives or things like that, but that affects your shelf life as well as many the amount of times that you have to go into production to sell your items. So there may be a slight flavor adjustment, maybe a slight adjustment on, you know, things that may affect the attribute, but in the uh, flavor attribute, but then the overall grand scheme of the product concept, if I have a barbecue sauce on a barbecue bacon burger, will I absolutely completely dead this barbecue bacon burger if I have to add a little bit of citric acid to keep my shelf life an extra six months? Again, for you to decide, but I, as the food scientist, would likely say, no, let's keep on pushing. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So th- factors like, again, ingredients, you know, preservatives, startup costs with the vendors, um, the co-packers, um, your packaging options for packaging, your labels, um, the creative aspects there, um, not just the marketing, but, you know, your um, ingredient decks, your nutritionals, and even startup costs for your consultants. You know, e- eventually, once mm-hmm. you have a plan, you need to build out the return of investment of how long it's going to take for this investment for me to get it back. Mm-hmm. But eventually, when you do it right the first time, you don't have to keep doing it. And absolutely. then you make your money. Yeah, absolutely. Nice, nice. Do you assist with um, distribution and or shelving, uh, you know, getting slots on shelves or getting connected with uh, retailers? That is not something, no, okay. that um, I would particularly assist with in my role. Okay. All right. So you you, you handed me off to uh, to someone to help me market and and really execute on the distribution side of things. Because I've heard yep. I've heard these horror stories where, you know, people will get a, a you know, a, a, a contract with Walmart, you know, for mm-hmm. X amount of product. And, you know, one, getting the money to even get the inventory to even make the product. And then at the end of the day, they found out that they didn't really make any money. You have you are you mm-hmm. familiar with any of those types of stories um, that you might be able to share of roadblocks that people may come across to how to avoid them? I am familiar with those types of stories, again, especially within the consumer packaged goods space. Uh, My advice to you there um, would definitely be read those fine lines in those um, contracts that fine print. Know what you're getting into from a systematic level. Um, The same way we talk about 100% in the formulation, those types of companies, they do a planogram, POGs. And they reset them um, as often as they need it. There's only so much shelf space, so much square footage in a Walmart, a a Kroger, a Shop and Save, wherever you want to go. The bottom line is, you know, um, they have the liberty to, if something is not selling because of the placement, maybe it's way at the bottom or way at the top, not in that strike zone is what we call it, um, mm-hmm. for a guest or a customer to really see and engage and wonder, hey, should I buy this over um, an- another national brand or another brand in, in period? So understand exactly where you are, the risk of that, mm-hmm. and then take that risk to decide how much or how little you want to invest in that. Again, if your pot of product's at the very bottom of the shelf, that, you know, that may not necessarily be who or what you're trying to target for but the bottom line is with those guys you have to pay to play so that's another you know initial kind of cost um, that you have to be aware of and again they have the liberty 
um, to adjust those pogs as needed or not necessary. You know, if it's selling, they'll keep it. If it's not, they'll let you know and they'll pull it. Right. So have a backup plan for sure um, when you're making that type of uh, consumer package good investment. Yeah, I learned that the hard way. I had an ice cream brand and, you know, the freezer space is actually the smallest space available in grocery stores, right? You know, yeah. you can have seven aisles of those middle aisles of, you know, shelf items, you know, dry good or room temperature items. But then there's only two aisles of freezers and one of those has vegetables and the other, you know, all the ice cream. And it was very difficult. Um, mm -hmm. And we were in seven stopping shops and it was very difficult for me to compete with the larger brands, one, because of that premium eye level shelving uh, shelf mm -hmm. area and two out of 52 weeks in a year you know I had to reduce my price um, 25 of those 52 weeks because you know when if Haagen-Dazs or somebody's going well Haagen-Dazs really never goes on sale now but you know <laughs> if, if Briars or Dryers which is owned by the same company decided that they wanted to now offer two quarts of ice cream for eight dollars Mm -hmm. Right. Versus one quart for six dollars. I had to drop my price as well um, right. to them because now they're given some, you know, special discounts. So that was that was hard lesson to learn. Um, like you say, reading that and fine then print. even being cautious of that store's brand, right? So right. yeah, you have the Briars, the Hogan Dogs, right. Walmart's got great value, you know. So right. Right. they're gonna always be the um, adjuster, and that also takes me to the point of seasonality for whatever the product is. Yeah. Being co uh, conscious of the consumer trends um, of when it sells the most, when it sells the least, so mm -hmm. that you can adjust your buy and spend, um, and you know, begin to know what to expect in instances like that. Right. Are there any common industry ratios uh, in terms of how much of your budget should go to marketing, customer acquisition, distribution, further R&D research and development? You know, that um, that's a hard question to answer because, again, it varies differently between food service um, and CPG gotcha. as well, the exact product. Some things sell themselves, um, right. you know, discount beverages, um, people always need to drink, but some things that may be more of a a luxury or I won't even say luxury, but some things that may be more of a niche type item or, you know, only some people like them. Not everyone has to have dessert. Most people are going to buy some sort of water or beverage. Um, it just depends. It just mm -hmm. depends. So that said, if you have more of a niche type item or a non-essential type item, you might want to invest more into marketing um, or, you know, what that strategy looks like. If you have something that's a consistent and an essential in most households, um, you may not need to do that. So it's a moving target. So, okay. So now let's say that we're successful, right? We've gone through this process. We have a product. It is moving. Do you recommend, and at what stage perhaps even recommend, two different lines? Meaning maybe you have a premium product that sells, you know, at a higher price, and then maybe you have a, a lower-end product that sells, you know, at a, at a much lower price. Um, do you, have you seen that? Do you recommend that? And at what, if so, at what stage should someone consider having a premium line and a, and a, a generic, for lack of a better word, generic line? Yeah, this is actually my favorite. I love line extensions, um, especially <laughs> being in innovation. Um, 
again, I think after your product has been validated for so many years and you are now in the black um, and your operating costs, your startup costs have been covered and you're making good money, I, I do recommend to keep your product and your line fresh with new innovation, whether that be uh, up, down, or, you know, laterally. Um, sometimes we'll have, people will have the same cost of goods or the same price point, but a new flavor, a new, you know, type of item um, within the same segment. Sometimes people will go up and they will say exclusive, premium, you know, gourmet, whatever that might look like, mm -hmm. plus up the ingredients a little bit, take the price point up because you have, you already have that loyal customer mm -hmm. and now you're going after another one. Same on, same thing on the way down. When you get to a value customer, <clears throat> That is something where you would definitely be pulling somebody in, but it's a totally different mindset because now that guest, that customer feels like, oh, I'm actually going to be able to attain this brand um, and familiarize myself with the product, but at a much um, lower cost. So you would have to, again, engineer th those costs out of your product, um, go a completely different route to you know, meet that guest needs. And let me also say, those are definitely three different people. Right. Mm -hmm. I always tell people to learn who you are mm -hmm. marketing to learn mm -hmm. who you are selling to, because the person that's going to buy at value the, is different than the person that's always going to buy at core mm -hmm. is different than the person that's always going to buy at premium. And, you know, even the time we're in now where grocery and, you know, food is as high as we have ever seen it, <laughs> um, you know, those are things to be conscious of. Um, when you're going into line extensions and deciding the number of SKUs you want to have in your um, product line. So again, you know, I'm seeing more SKU consolidation now with, with large brands than I've ever seen before because right. they simply just don't have the demand for it anymore. Right. So there's a time and place for all of it, but I always recommend new innovation to keep your brand fresh, um, to bring new news. You don't have to do a lot sometimes, um, but it, but it helps, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. Now, you answered my next question, too, is how many SKUs? Like, I mean, you know, is one enough? I mean, for those who are listening, meaning one SKU, like one product. Um, or do you have three or five or seven? Like, I, you know, some people try to start with too many flavors or too many mm -hmm. products and, and or not enough to really, mm -hmm. you know, uh, position yourself within the brand. Do you have any, any recommendations or comments on how many you should start with? Yeah. Again, I'd, I'd say that depends on um, the set the category. Product, the set category. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it it it'll, it's always going to help to start with and promote your base. Even if you start with your base and a line extension, always promote your base because that's going to be your tried and true, a standard barbecue sauce. If my um, other skew is a honey barbecue sauce, then there's always, again, gonna be a customer for that, but I'm gonna make sure I go after the standard so that if you happen see, to see the honey barbecue sauce, that's just an extra wow, that's the extra surprise that you're gonna get next time. Um, it, it depends on the, on the category, depends on the product. Um, and each case would be, you know, kind of vetted out um, case by case. Nice, nice. Well, we're talking to Charity Howard here, food scientist, adult culinary reactions. Uh, she's dropping lots of knowledge on us, and we want to thank her for that. So as we wind down for the last five minutes uh, or so, um, let's talk a little bit about you being black female in this space, all right? Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, what are some of those challenges been? How do how do you know how do we get the word out to the next generation of food scientists to even understand and pursue this level of career? Um, you know, that one that it even exists. Like how many, mm-hmm. you know, how many black and brown children even know that there is a food mm-hmm. scientist behind these brands that are doing what you do. So one, mm-hmm. let's give you a round of applause for that and 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 thank, thank you. you for you know just Appreciate being who it. you are. But mm-hmm. two, again, let's let's talk a little about a little bit about some of the challenges you've seen. How many people, how many people of the color do you see in your space? Um, and, and and again, segue into what can we do to get the word out? Not only just about what you do now, your your company, but how can we inspire the next generation of food scientists? Yep. So I will tell you now, um, I've definitely grown through, grown up in the ranks of the business of food. Again, I've always been on the back end of the large brands that you see and have in your household daily um, within the corporate environment um, and, and their corporation buildings, but as well working with those large manufacturers, the, the Tysons of the world who are based in Northwest Arkansas, um, the crafts of the world and um, you know, all of these large players that you see um, in the grocery store. That said, often, I'm talking about 98%, <laughs> I am um, the only um, Black woman at the table, um, Black person, but definitely Black woman at the table. And I've had to um, navigate that space um, in my career, show up um, mm-hmm. as well, show out, mm-hmm. be very knowledgeable <laughs> in, in what I know. Um, mm-hmm. Come very confidently in, in being able to speak to what I need as the customer, but also how to, you know, guide that vendor and also guide and persuade my guests to educate them on what it is um, I'm selling. Um, it can be an, an uncomfortable space for some, but um, for me, I know that I'm equipped in my knowledge. I know that I'm equipped in my education and my experience. So, you know, claiming that seat at the table Mm -hmm. um has always worked for me again especially in spaces where i may be in northwest arkansas and i'm truly the one of the only black people in the building but you're gonna get me what i need every time (laughs) (laughs) absolutely i'm not leaving here with this i'm leaving here with something I'm right. not leaving here without it. So, right. um, you know, it's it's definitely, you know, in the corporate food environment, it's a very small environment. And mm-hmm. I will say that too. Um, the food industry is, you know, it's incestual. And there's a lot of people that kind of take, you know, turns at various places. Um, but, you know, again, I love this, um, this side of the, of the business. Now my title is Director of Food Innovation and Commercialization. And I take that with a lot of pride. I know, I remember what it was when I was, you know, a technologist and then a manager and then, you know, all the rest. And now being able to lead in that space and navigate to your point in that space and recruit and retain and tell those little black girls that look just like me and little black boys that look just like me. It just so happens my brother also, who's 14 years younger than me, also went into food science. I was like, listen, I'm not asking you to do this but i'm telling you it's been a very rewarding career for me so Mm -hmm. let's look at it and he he loves it um i need that i need Mm -hmm. black stem um within this within this um space so that i have more of a pool to choose from Mm -hmm. because i want that i want these large corporations to see that yes there are more of us here Mm -hmm. um and and we're doing it 
Absolutely, absolutely. Let's give a round of applause. <laughs> wow. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we definitely have a mission. Um, we, have a, we have a lot of work to do. When I say we, us as, as black food service professionals in every lane. And, you know, we always have to be educating and inspiring the next generation of, of food service uh, professionals. So, again, I want to thank you for that. And, you know, it wouldn't, have been, it wouldn't have been appropriate for us to have this conversation without including that in this conversation. So Absolutely. 100%. So, I mean, as we wind down, how does someone get in contact with you um, if they want to hire you for your services? Absolutely. So my website is www.dopeculinaryrxns.com. Dope Culinary RXNS. Um, you can um, also email me at dopeculinaryrxns at gmail.com. Um, get in touch with me directly. Let me know. Um, you know, and we haven't spoken much about that, but I'm in the cannabis space and the food space. The food comes first. That's what I always say. And <laughs> cannabis is just the extra herb on top. So don't let it, um, don't let it deter you. So, uh, you know, again, my, my, my space as a food scientist, as an innovator, as a product developer, as all the things, I always hold that space, um, for, for my food people, but definitely for my black food people. I want us all to win from, from various different angles. So contact me there. Let me know what you need. And, um, we can we can get it rolling. Absolutely. Thank you again, Charity. And I want to encourage everyone, if you have a product out there, you know, food truck vendors, chefs, caterers, if you have a product out there, you know, put your plan together, uh, get your base recipes, as she said, and then uh, reach out to her. Um, you know, throw her some business. And what you're going to find out is you're going to see that there's going to be a return on that investment. You have to put that money in your budget to pay for consultants and experts like Charity and myself. And I know a lot of times we don't see it or we don't have it because we're working with limited access to capital from banks and investors and things of that nature. But if you really want to set yourself up for success, you have to reach out to someone like Charity. Um, so I highly encourage everyone to uh, follow her on Facebook, Instagram, reach out to her email, uh, LinkedIn, and just uh, you know be engaged. Whew. Charity. <laughs> I want to thank you for coming on the show. Thank um, you so much for you know, having me. For, for, for answering my emails and responding to me because I, you know, I, I kind of, I do look up to you. you know what I, mean? I, I, I admire what you do. <laughs> I appreciate uh, that. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. Uh, so I want to thank our sponsors, Eat Okra. If you have not already done so, please download the Eat Okra app. Up to, at this point, up to 15,000 black-owned restaurants across the country. If you have a restaurant in your area that is not on the app, you can add it. You can like those restaurants. You can add photos. And for those restaurant tours that are out there, um, make sure you claim your restaurant on Eat Okra because you can qualify for scholarships and a lot of things that Eat Okra is bringing to the table from their corporate sponsors. So, again, Eat Okra, the app, download it. Follow them, Facebook, Instagram, uh, and LinkedIn. So without any further ado, I want to thank you for watching and listening of another episode of Behind the Numbers, Hidden Figures Behind the Numbers with the Restaurant Scientist. My name is Jason Wallace. I am the Restaurant Scientist. Until we meet again, power to the people. Huh?